0: Two English Majors Walk Into a Bar is created by immature adults for other immature adults. Listen at your own discretion. Welcome to Two English Majors
1: Walk Into a Bar, a literary comedy podcast.
0: I'm Kathleen Brumbach.
1: And I'm Christian Lutz. I would definitely do opium with Oscar Wilde. I would get arrested with Oscar <laughs> it's worth Wilde. Worth it! People used to tell me I talked about books too much. And now
0: you drink about books. <laughs> is it time to get less? let's get lit yay we're recording yay. <laughs> i feel like we start the episodes like the exact same way we just get really excited when it says recording yeah you are <laughs> recording
1: <laughs> it's our favorite <paper>
0: words <laughs> <laughs> hey it's my favorite phrase because it means i actually remembered to hit the record button <laughs> and it's we always a good, a good feeling yeah we didn't actually like go through like the first 20 minutes without
1: recording which we have before it, it yeah. depends on how much we pre for the episodes really exactly that's the key
0: no we were talking about who should go first and I was like I rehearsed doing the plot for this very large
1: novel you know what I feel like we should do at some point we should just have an episode where I time you
0: on how quickly you can get through plot I tried so hard. Be like, it, okay, seconds, but it go. it has to be we have to decide what is like a reasonable length of a plot. No, I mean, I want you to go through like
1: like Ulysses. Yeah, Ulysses in 30 seconds. I just want to see if you could do it. I just
0: Actually, Ulysses would be easy because <laughs> like nothing happens. Ireland, people are sad. Done. Um, I also saw this like
1: TikTok recently where it was like People describing, or not people, students describing, uh, plots to novels in Gen Z terms, and I really liked it. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. I feel like we need to try to do that, though. As millennials, I'm not sure how we would do, but we could let people grade us. It'd be fine.
0: <laughs> I I have a little bit in my segment about how millennials and Gen Z kind of interact with each other. Yeah. So I feel like we can figure it out. We can figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. If I anybody can, us. it's us. Yeah, for sure. Honestly. <laughs> cool. Cool. So uh, we, we did want to. We should yeah. probably introduce ourselves. I mean, oh, we are. Oh, shit, shit. I forgot. <laughs> I always forget. All we right. Are who are we? are two
1: English majors.
0: Walk into a bar. A
1: literary comedy podcast. <laughs> yes, we are the two English majors. And for the first time, we are coming from two coming to you at you to you i don't know we're coming to you from two different states
0: across yes. the country yes since you yeah. heard us last we both moved yeah. actually yeah christian's still in chicago and i am all the way in new york city and we both live in new apartments they're beautiful they are <laughs> we no longer have to blur our backgrounds because we're embarrassed about what's behind us. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Now you can see the entire apartment in its full glory. Exactly. By apartment, I mean my bedroom, but you know, still. Yeah, I'm always trying to show it off. This, honestly, for New York City, this is a very large studio and I am going to be in the poorhouse for the rest of my life, but I, yeah, I'm really enjoying the studio. Such is the millennial life. We'll never be able to own homes anyway. (laughs) We'll never own anything except a studio and like a bottle of wine. Yeah.
1: That's all we need. An avocado (laughs)
0: toast. But yeah, uh, we also, in in addition to introducing ourselves, we did want to talk about at the top of the episode, since it is February, we obviously, like we said, are in America. uh, We are thinking about, yeah, (laughs) the Christian's like- I'm shocked. (laughs) We're in America? What? What? You mean mean we are products of the American public school system? (laughs)
1: But I'm not. So I'm just saying. I mean, yes, you of, are. You went to high school. Of. I guess that counts. I feel like I was yeah. pretty set before then, but you that know. that's
0: the part that applies to now because that's <laughs> the part where you read novels.
1: Pretend to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You pretend um. <laughs> to. But yes, as we were in high school and reading novels, um, we were aware and are thinking about now February and celebrating Black History Month and thinking about what that means for us as white mm-hmm. women. Understanding our privilege and understanding anti racist um, literature that's out there as well. I feel like I should have something to
1: add to that, but I don't know. I'm like three beers in and just don't. But
0: <laughs> I know. I, 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 am I have to... a
1: whole list of books for people to read. I just got to yes. say, but yes. we'll get to we that will. later.
0: We will talk about that later. Um, and when I was thinking about what to cover this month, I was thinking about doing some more poetry. And what I decided on was Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. And we have to like address at the very beginning that it's Dumas. And I watched so many videos (laughs) and I was like, surely it's Dumas. I mean, but that's what we're taught. But that's
1: how you would pronounce it in English. But in French, you don't necessarily pronounce the last consonant.
0: Well, I did. I did see a lot about how like I I think it, it like it truly is Dumas. Like I, I, think that I've just been dumb all these years, and I've been saying Dumas. And I think even in America, the uh, most accepted pronunciation of the name is Dumas, not yeah, Dumas. because it's a
1: French name.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yes, we, I will continue to say it correctly <laughs> <laughs> throughout. Now you know, yes, throughout the um the episode. But yeah, my first introduction to Three Musketeers was when I was like I was like nine years old. And I rented a giant copy of (laughs) Three Musketeers. It was, I think it was the thickest book in the like the children's library section area. I rented it from the library. I took it. We my family and I went to like Mississippi that year to visit relatives. And I took it with me. And the whole time I read like three passages that I thought were like interesting and fun from the book. And I just looked at the (laughs) picture. I mean, to be
1: fair, you were nine. so
0: I was nine. It's a pretty hefty
1: lift for a nine-year-old.
0: But it, I mean, honestly, a hefty lift just given the weight of the book itself. Yeah, exactly. I don't know
1: how you carried that around with your tiny little hands.
0: Yeah, my tiny little (laughs) baby hands. Your little baby
1: hands. Baby Kathleen (laughs) carrying a book as big as herself.
0: (laughs) I know, little baby Kathleen carrying around this huge book. But yeah, I was only looking at the pictures. It was not a heavy lift. Uh, when it came to reading because I think I read like two chapters
1: yeah <laughs> like that I mean it. it probably took you the entire summer to get through and who knows if you understood that at nine years
0: old <laughs> oh no I understood it because it was like a lot of dialogue and it was mm. it was written in um I, it was a translation that was um very accessible for oh like, it
1: was like one of those like youth versions yeah
0: yeah but I mean it was a youth version but it was also it It was the full length it was the whole <laughs> novel but. It was just written in a way that was – or translated in a way that was accessible. But it was probably more for like 13 to 16, not for a nine-year-old. You tried. Yeah, I did my best. I did my best. But it inspired me to really, really love this story and really love the – I I really want to focus on like the prose that Dumas was – so good at kind of like piecing together and I went down a rabbit hole today as we all do on Wikipedia and I learned all about how Dumas worked with um this other guy what was his name Auguste Maquet. not sure how you pronounce his last name I did not get to the videos about his last name only Dumas (laughs) (laughs) but yeah this other guy Augusta Marquet or Marquis, he was the one doing all the research that Alexander Dumas then was able to take and make these adventure stories out of. So when we have Three Musketeers and we have Count of Monte Cristo and we have uh, Man in the Iron Mask, those are all collaborations, actually, between the two of them. Where McKee was like really, or I think it's actually McKay. McKay was really, really good at like researching historical events. And he would basically create like bullet points. And then he would be like, hey, are these things from history interesting to you? And then Dumas would take them and he would make like embellish it and make, you know, characters where there were no characters. And that's how he was able to be inspired to write about Historical fiction and historical like adventure. So the sad thing is that as I'm like listening to
1: you talk about this, I can imagine two things: the Disney Three Musketeers and then the Man in the Iron Mask with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. So I'm like, oh yeah, they created these characters, and I'm seeing Leonardo DiCaprio's face and.
0: <laughs> yes. Years later, probably in like high school, my second go around with being obsessed with Three Musketeers was all about the 1993 Kiefer Sutherland and Tim Curry. Yeah, exactly. That's the one I'm yeah. seeing. <laughs> the
1: 1993, and I cannot remember what Year Man and the Iron Mask came out, but I feel like most people know that one. It was the early um, 90s. Was it?
0: Yeah, I think it was pre-Titanic.
1: And I probably watched that way too young. Maybe that's why it's like seared into my memory. <laughs>
0: Titanic the was iron mask before? itself
1: is pretty violent just saying yeah that's um, true that's true and at 90 in 94 I would have been five six six years old so you were
0: 35
1: I was 35 a very short 35 <laughs> with tiny baby hands
0: tiny little baby hands. <laughs> yeah no the 90s were I, I did watch some clips from that today as like research and the 90s were just so uh, I don't know if that film holds up necessarily, but the '90s were so like lavish with the adventure yeah. movies. Like thinking about it was it, it's a great like, time. Yeah, Titanic. That's the not Mummy. an adventure movie. I don't think that's an adventure. Yes, it is the Titanic. Yeah, there's the boat.
1: <laughs> the, they go on a people... boat and some people die. That makes it an adventure. Yes, <laughs> I think it's like a tragedy romance. I'd say three Musketeers and the Mummy are definitely adventure, but no one's fighting anything in the Mummy or in the Mummy. Yes, they are. Um, In the Titanic, no one's fighting anything except they're not drowning. The boat
0: (laughs) sinking—that is the fight. I feel like that's a lost fight from the beginning. They fight an iceberg. (laughs) They don't win. I know that's what I was gonna say. They fight an iceberg and they don't win. That is <laughs> the story. Okay, I feel
1: like given how long Three Musketeers is, um, I feel like we should get into it because who knows where we'll. I know. End up.
0: I've already. I've already derailed everything. All right, <laughs> I'm try. gonna get into it. Uh, drinking game for Three Musketeers. Mama. Everybody get ready. Drinking game will be every time Kathleen points out like a weird plot hole. Because there's so many that I have so many questions about. So, yeah, bizarre plot holes. Drink every time there's a bizarre plot hole. Okay. All right. And then, um, oh, my um, like one sentence summary. <laughs> Honestly, all for, w- wait, no, I'm drunk. All Is it all for <laughs> one and one for all? Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all for one and one for all. Except if you are a woman in this novel, because they are so kind of poorly treated and also very isolated. I don't know. Maybe Dumas did not write women very well. Maybe I haven't like read enough. But yeah, all for one and one for all, unless you are a woman. You can't be a woman musketeer, apparently. Although I'd love to see that. I'm pretty sure there's like a stage adaptation of that. Yeah, I feel like there has to be. For sure. All right. Jumping into the plot that I rehearsed so diligently and now can't find on Wikipedia. Okay, here (laughs) we are. All right, we have D'Artagnan. He is our young, beautiful hero of the story. He lives in Gascony and he's like, you know what, I'm going to make it big. I'm going to move to the city. He moves from Gascony to Paris. And he's like, I'm going to live it up. It's my dream to be a musketeer. And he thinks he's going to be like a swashbuckling musketeer. And he gets Swash- there and he has so a irons. real bad time. He immediately offends three of the current musketeers. And that's where we get our, our ensemble of characters, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Those are the three musketeers. And also, no one can count. I do feel like a particular attachment to three musketeers simply because I cannot count. And also there are four <laughs> musketeers. But he offended the three.
1: He wants yes. to be a musketeer. So he's not a musketeer yet when the book starts.
0: I mean, I guess he doesn't become a musketeer until like the very end, but like yeah. this is a four person story.
1: Yeah. About his relationship with the three musketeers.
0: I know. I but feel like it
1: fits. Also, he, I don't understand how he's going to be swashbuckling, but he will, Pirates he will Night. be.
0: He like immediately he offends all three of the musketeers separately then he has duels with them later that day and like of course oh yeah yeah a dude so he schedules himself back to back to back
1: thinking he he's gonna win all of them
0: yeah thinking he's gonna win every single one of these duels like a dipshit and he shows up i mean i guess if you're dueling you assume you're gonna win because otherwise you're dying so that's true that's true he shows up to his duels with the three musketeers they all know each other so they're like bro what are you doing here And then D'Artagnan is like, oh, yeah, I actually like triple booked myself. Oops. (laughs) The Disney movie seems pretty accurate thus far. (laughs) Kind of. They took some liberties (laughs) with some stuff. But yeah, so he has his kind of like they start the first duel, but then they get interrupted by Mm -hmm. the Cardinals. I think they're called like the Rochelle, but they're basically like the Cardinals version of the Musketeers. And they're like, hey, guys, you're not supposed to be dueling out here. It's, like, illegal as fuck. And, and so they're, like, then- narc. Yeah, exactly. narking on them. So then mm-hmm. they get in a fight with, like, the Cardinal's, like, personal... I-, I guess I should explain what a musketeer is, too. So, like, a musketeer... And at the time, it was a little bit controversial because a musketeer is obviously a person who has like one of those little like rapier swashbuckling swords but they were meant <laughs> to be like a. I do love like you keep using the word
1: swashbuckling i think pirates and like
0: that's what they say. i mean they're basically pirates they're base they are like the lowest level of the army so they get the cheapest weapons i
1: feel like that doesn't make them pirates though aren't pirates like outside the law kind of thing
0: Well, they were always – like, the musketeers in real life were always outside the law, like, in every country in Europe because they kept getting drunk and, like, starting bar fights, which this is where it starts to turn into Kathleen and Christian. (laughs) (laughs) I say having
1: never been in a fight.
0: (laughs) No, because, like, if people gave us money, like, from, like, the monarchy, they gave us money to be, like, their personal bodyguards as musketeers and be, like, the the people that protect the king – We'd what would really we do with that money? We would get drunk
1: <laughs> and not protect anyone. We would probably lose our jobs super fast,
0: and that is exactly what's happening to Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. <laughs> they are stands to reason. Yeah, they are like immediately like bad at their jobs. Most musketeers, I think, at the time were pretty bad at their jobs. The general people of Fran- like the public of France. Had a big problem with them, so that's why the cardinal, who's like trying to like take over, I, I in the Disney movie, he's trying to like uh, take over all of France, and like Tim yeah. Curry is just like chef's <sighs> such kiss. a badass. And so they are in this His next fight. best role is the Muppet Treasure Island. So just just saying, yes, <laughs> they need a Muppets
1: uh, Three Musketeers. That would be amazing. Does it exist? That's a possibility. Okay, keep talking. I'm going to Google. <laughs>
0: go down that rabbit hole. So yeah, so they get into a scuffle with the cardinal's men. Then they uh they run off. Basically D'Artagnan is like, "Hey, I'm in love with this girl. Her name is Constance. She is a lady in waiting for Anne, the Queen of France." So the cardinal wants to like basically be creepy as hell and make sexual advances on Anne, the Queen of France. And she is having an affair with Buckingham, who's this English guy. And we all know the English and the French, they don't get along. But then Buckingham has to go to England. So she's like, oh my God, I love you so much. I just want to (laughs) like give you something before you go. Which is not
1: what happens in the Disney movie.
0: (laughs) No, this, yeah. And this is a whole thing too. Like this is a big part of the novel. She gives Buckingham... I've seen it described as so many different things in so many different places. It's diamond. Like she gives him diamonds essentially, but they are diamond. They're called diamond tabs. They're called diamond studs. Sometimes they're referred to as a necklace or as just diamond jewelry, but there's four of them and I'm going to affectionately call them diamond nuggets. (laughs) Diamond nuggets. All I think of is dino nugs and that's like. Very I think they were just like diamonds that were like in a setting, like it. You could put it in a ring or like a necklace or a crown okay. if you wanted to, or like cufflinks. She's like, "I have this pretty thing for you." Just yeah, she's like, "I've got some shiny yeah. stuff for you before you go away to England." But Don't forget, I have money. <laughs> the yeah, exactly. The diamond nuggets were given to Queen Anne by her husband, the King of France. Mm. So then, to get back at her, the Cardinal is like, "Hey, King of France, what's up, bro? We should throw." <laughs> this, like, party, and we should prove that your wife is cheating on you. Even though he's the one that wants to sleep with Queen Anne. He's just mad because he's not getting any. Yeah, he's just butthurt. And so, he's like, we should throw this fancy party, and we should tell everybody that she's going to wear the diamond nuggets at the party. And if she doesn't show up with the diamond nuggets... Then you know. Then you, yeah, you know that she gave them to the Duke of Buckingham. So d'Artagnan, I think I'm I'm kind of drunk so I don't remember, but I think he finds out about like the golden nuggets from Constance, his like new girlfriend in France or in Paris. And so he finds out about the diamond nuggets being lost and he's like, "Oh my god, I volunteer as tribute. I will go get the diamond nuggets from England so you can have them in time for the party." And he gets the three musketeers to go with him. Interesting. Well, yeah, and so I don't I don't understand why this novel is not called The Quest for the Diamond Nuggets. But... <laughs> it's a much more appropriate title. Obviously exactly. there are four main characters. Exactly. But they basically they all get like wounded or like incapacitated and they fight a bunch of like swashbuckling duels on their way. They see they are on a boat. they're almost (laughs) (laughs) pirates. they're basically pirates i'm pretty sure that most pirates like they retired and they became musketeers yeah that's what all pirates wanted to be exactly i think that's that's the move but yeah so they get all the way to england two of the four of the diamond nuggets are missing oh no And this brings Um, us to our first plot hole. Let's pause for a second and
1: I'll let you know that the Muppets Three Musketeers does exist. (gasps) They are Cookie Monster, Grover, and Harry Monster. Oh my God. (laughs) Just in case anyone wanted to know. It looks like it was part of like the Muppets TV show. So it's a
0: short, important things. Google it. I love that. Oh, cool. But yeah. So where was I? (laughs) 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 Oh, yes. The the diamond nuggets. Two of the diamond nuggets are missing. This brings us to our first plot point that makes no sense because what the Duke of Buckingham says after that, he's like, oh, I'll send these two with you and I'll just get two fake diamond nuggets to send with you.
1: What I think the first plot point was really is that why do the musketeers care that the queen is cheating on the king? like isn't there loyalty to the king
0: so well they they don't care but like they just they want to fuck over the cardinal like oh, they okay. don't like the cardinal so he's okay. trying to like ruin the reputation of the queen
1: so, so like if he wants to
0: ruin it they have to fix it right right they have to make sure that i guess like the king and queen like stay together so she can continue cheating on him with a british guy <laughs>
1: makes total sense
0: yeah yeah it's their job all right and so <laughs> Uh, well, and also because D'Artagnan wants to fuck Constance.
1: Oh, that's true. That's the big deal. Yeah. But also, so he's, he's the new guy. Like he's supposed to have already offended all of these guys. Why do they jump on board? The Disney version makes way more sense.
0: Yeah, they had nothing <laughs> else to do. Essentially, that's probably it. Yeah, yeah they in the were Disney version. French. They just needed to go
1: save the king's life because the cardinal was trying to kill him, and that just makes way more sense to me.
0: Yeah, they. Well, and like in the Disney movie, they get like disbanded. I think they also do get disbanded as well in the novel but it does not say that that's on the why they have so much page. spare time on their hands right right they're basically <laughs> unemployed so pirates. they can
1: go be sh- yeah swashbuckling almost
0: pirates if i was unemployed i would do so much swashbuckling you have no idea i believe it
1: you are in new york now i mean
0: the ocean's right there <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true i i yeah the the hudson river <laughs> yeah is right there
1: right on out to be a pirate
0: <laughs> obviously after being an actor that is the most logical the, career path. Yeah, it's the obvious next step for exactly. real. Exactly. So yes. So the Musketeers, well, D'Artagnan makes it all the way back to France. Crisis averted with I mean, that my whole issue with this plot hole thing is that like Queen Anne could have just got some other fake diamonds.
1: Her husband would know the difference.
0: But see, Buckingham, he's gonna get fake diamonds for her, so they're fake anyway. <laughs> he has to fake two of the four. I think it would have been easier to just get fake. like do you think four... he just like
1: dropped them?
0: No, we're going to find out. we We do find oh, okay. out next that it is Milady de Winter, mm-hmm. the femme fatale of this novel that stole two of the diamonds. I remember her. yes. So she is I, all of the YouTube videos that I watched today. They were mostly high school students. Um, doing like book reports and posting it on YouTube. And they talked about how she's the first uh, femme fatale that ever became popular in literature. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't know. She, you know, like Constance is not a very well-fleshed out character. I don't think that Queen Anne is either, but Milady is definitely the one that has endured throughout history and that has... You know, like any production you see of of three musketeers, whether you're on stage or on screen, Milady is the the leading lady of the show. She is the lead. And I think more recent film adaptations treat her with a little bit more respect because she's like a badass woman who, you know, like started out like absolutely like destitute and poor and imprisoned and ended up basically being kind of like on top of the world. And then yeah. she will she will get killed by the three musketeers at the end of this book. But she was an independent bad bitch. So she was an independent bad bitch. And that's why, like at yeah. the beginning, I was like, it's all for one and one for all, unless you're a woman who like they decide needs to be like punished <laughs> or like seeking her revenge. I mean, she does do some bad shit. She But you also know...
1: women were kind of just side characters at that point in literature, so you know.
0: Yeah. But I mean, honestly, though, like the novel really like from here on out, we are going to focus on her. We're going to get a full backstory from her. You cannot say that she is not a a well fleshed out character the way that Constance and Queen Anne are. Yeah, they're they're very much like half characters. She is a a fully realized character, but, you know, only bad things happen to her. And I I think at least for me, that makes me feel. Yeah, very very unhappy with how she's treated in this novel but she it's does her. kill some people so basically but just she kills- casually it's not her passion <laughs> <laughs> it's a hobby it's not a career yeah. <laughs> even though she's a spy she's a spy for the the cardinal that's what she does that's like her job
1: this is Absolutely unrelated to everything we're talking about, but I don't know if you can hear right now. There are women on the stairs yodeling currently, um, because it echoes very well. So I apologize for any yodeling in the background. I don't it's hear any also yodeling. Hilarious.
0: <laughs> but I'm sad that I can't hear the yodeling. I know it's that's depressing because it's hilarious. It's
1: <laughs> they're having a blast moving
0: up all those stairs. <laughs> I love it. Okay, back on track. Yes, back on track. <laughs> um basically we have constance i'm I'm gonna fast forward through some stuff constance she's gonna get kidnapped twice i don't even know why basically it's just yeah she's i don't know what's wrong with her she just keeps getting kidnapped and then it's held against you know d'artagnan to get him to like do stuff and then he has to drag the other three musketeers into the whole thing eventually they're all like very broke they don't have any money so then d'artagnan starts this affair with this woman named Milady, who he doesn't know is like related to any of this at this point and he's like oh my god she loves me like she really loves me like he's actually getting attention from like a grown-ass woman so <laughs> now he's like i know what love is and he ends up like sleeping with her pretending to be somebody else to get information out of her Which is basically rape like she did not know that he was somebody else and he did that with malicious intent pretending to be someone else. Mm. And yet he's still head over heels in love. That seems interesting. Right. He's still in love with her. And like basically it's a huge thing in this novel that all men can't help but fall in love with her. So every time she gets arrested, she seduces her (laughs) jailer and that's how she gets out of jail. (laughs) I wish life were that easy. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It's never worked for me. Surprise, yeah, me surprise. Either. But yeah, she just does a lot of crime. She poison, or somehow Buckingham gets killed. I forget how that happens. And then eventually they get a sapphire ring from a lady that they pawn off. And then Athos is like, wait, let me see that ring, bro. And it's a ring that his supposedly dead wife had. Oh, snap. Yeah. So then Athos realizes that Milady is actually his wife who he tried to murder.
1: So why is he upset she's not dead? Like, at that point, she's gone from your life, dude. Like, isn't that cool? Like, Also, I feel like the Three Musketeers have already solved the cheating problems because Buckingham's now dead. They did solve the cheating
0: problem, but now they're, like, (laughs) broke. So... They could pawn that ring and he could just leave his dead wife dead. Right. But but she's she's plotting all these like um, assassination attempts against them because now she she's working against them because she knows that they're enemies of the cardinal. How does he know that by the ring? Because he knows that she's still alive.
1: OK, so she was plotting beforehand. So he was going to have her murdered and then he finds out she's alive because. Of no, the ring and no, no, still
0: no. It was, it was years ago that he tried to murder her. Like it was like a <laughs> For decade no good ago. reason. Well, no, he like saw that she had this like brand on her back and he was like, that's the brand of a criminal because I don't know, like she stole some shit or whatever. Or I think somebody like accused her of like cheating. Mm. And so she's like branded as a criminal. So then he's like, I'm going to kill you because you're a criminal. And that makes so much sense. Yeah. Like not even have this is why men need to go to therapy. He's like, (laughs) I I don't need to have a conversation about this with you. No, you committed a crime, therefore you
1: must die.
0: Exactly, exactly. So he tries to hang her, but then she survives, and then she like continues her like life of crime seeking revenge on him. Which I
1: mean, to be fair, the person who you were married to tried to kill you. I
0: think that's revenge seems logical. She deserves some revenge. So, yeah, so this all like continues happening. Constance is at a convent because, of course, she is. Milady ends <laughs> up there too. And Milady poisons Constance and she oh. dies just as D'Artagnan is arriving to find her. Can't have competition. Very sad. Yeah, exactly. Very, very sad. So then eventually they start going after Milady and they catch up with her. She gets detained by like her former brother in law. She's been married a lot, apparently. And so
1: she gets detained. I remember the Disney movie. So I'm just like making assumptions about Milady and.
0: Yeah, well, it's really <laughs> messed up in the book, like, really messed up. Like, they have a fake trial for her. They all know that it's fake and like they say that they feel very uneasy about it. Then they hire an executioner to cut off her head. Oh, well, that's sweet. And so all of this happens. They steal this, like, paperwork from her that's kind of like a – like, paperwork that's a a pardon, essentially, for, like, any wrongdoing. They take it back to Paris, and, like, I think the cardinal at the end knows that he's been bested. So it says in the Wikipedia page in the ending – He writes a new order giving the bearer a promotion to lieutenant in the Treville company of musketeers. So congratulations for killing the lady who was like his, she was his person, you know, his spy, but he's been bested. So he's like, whoever did this is getting promoted to being a musketeer. (laughs) And so the other three musketeers who I like, this is another plot hole. I assume, like, why would they have to turn down the promotion of being a musketeer? They're already musketeers.
1: Yeah, so no, so they're not going to be musketeers, so they have to put D'Artagnan up. It's like, if you're up for a managerial promotion, like, you don't, if you're already a manager, you don't need that, so you can promote the other person.
0: Right, but, like, the other three, they have to, like, decline it, I guess? Like, they have to decline the calendar invite at the end. Like
1: (laughs) (laughs) This Zoom meeting went wrong. Exactly. Maybe it's like, you know, as in corporate America... Um, the Cardinal didn't or whoever is promoting them, whatever, um, <laughs> didn't know that they were already in that role. So he offers it to everyone equally, and you would just have to decline because your supervisor doesn't know what's going on
0: exactly. So basically, the ending of it is essentially the throne room scene from Star Wars, where D'Artagnan is given i guess I guess they give him the golden nuggets. <laughs> at the end, he gets the golden nuggets and he gets promoted and it says d'artagnan though heartbroken and full of regrets finally receives the promotion he had coveted
1: life sucks but at least you got a
0: promotion yeah life <laughs> sucks but d'artagnan finally got to become a musketeer the fourth musketeer Congrats. that's that's the plot that i took 40 minutes to talk about <laughs> And yeah, the the last thing that I can probably end on. Oh, actually, I'll do the quiz and then we'll jump out and then we have one final thing. Uh, So the quiz, uh, how originally, how many diamond nuggets were there?
1: Four. Yes.
0: Yay.
1: I'm so smart.
0: Oh, another one. Where is D'Artagnan from? France. (laughs) (laughs) He's from Gascony in Gascony. france i like the word gas beautiful cool cool we'll hop back out we'll hop back in and then
1: i got a 50 percent. that's pretty much passing so i'm good <laughs> <Yes. for them. laughs>
0: okay we are back yes So, uh, finishing up Three Musketeers, I almost made it in 40 minutes. I almost did it. I was so close. (laughs) So close. (laughs) But yes, the very last thing, I did want to talk about Alexander Dumas because I watched like a bunch of videos about him today. And I actually did a ton of research for this novel, like bizarrely, because usually we're just always flying by the seat of our pants. (laughs) The novel was written in 1844. The novel is set between 1625 and 1628 because Dumas was really inspired by like that um, like pre-revolution area or area (laughs) era of France. Even though what I learned today is that France has revolutions like every couple of years, like just from like 1625 to like like 1850, like every couple of years, they just like had some type of revolution. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah, I'm always, like like everybody else, I'm always trying to work out in my head which, like, which, re- there's like the French Revolution with, like, Marie Antoinette. Then there's also the Les Miserables Revolution. That's like a-, a <laughs> The totally- Les Mis
1: Revolution?
0: Yes. And there were, like, there were, like, 20 between those two.
1: There are quite a few.
0: I know. But something I learned about Alexander Dumas today, other than how to pronounce Dumas- <laughs> Is that he was, uh, he was one of the people that was protesting and fighting in the Les Mis revolution. That was like in the 1820s. Yeah. And 1830s. Yeah. He was there at like one of the like battle skirmishes on the streets. And the whole reason, I mean, just like D'Artagnan, that's why like, I really feel like he was writing from like his experience. He was coming to Paris when he was young to be kind of like, like his father. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to. Because his father was a famous man. Who fought with Napoleon and everything. And then. Um, because his father was. Like a part of the military. But also not a part of the military. Because he was a biracial man. He was not given his. Like compensation. After leaving the military. after, And he was like disgraced. After leaving Napoleon. And so for Alexander Dumas growing up in a world that, you know, trying to break into the world of literature. He was a playwright. Of course. (laughs) I love to see it. He was a playwright for a while. He got a lot of money as a playwright, but he also, you know, faced like a French audience that would draw racist images of him in the, you know, newspapers and articles and stuff like that. So he was coming to a world that even though he lived in rural France and then moved to Paris, he was coming to a world that like did not accept him. And then I found out that like he similar to Oscar Wilde a little bit, like when he died, he was very poor. And his son, also named Alexander Dumas, became kind of a, a writer of note in his time. And then like, one of the last things he said to his son was like, or his son asked him, do you think that you'll be remembered and like read throughout the ages and apparently like it's all hearsay but like <laughs> alexander dumas like smiled knowingly and then one of the videos i watched like it ended on like you know who doesn't know all for one and one for all okay
1: but that's like ridiculous because like it's a beautiful yeah. idea to think that you would know but it'd be like van gogh knowing that he would be famous like no he died being poor and with nothing right. and then well i think it happened think later. That-
0: Alexander Alexander Dumas did become very 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 famous. Okay. And he was rich for a while. But then all of that money like as, you know, social stuff started to change in France with the next revolution. Exactly, with the next revolution. <laughs> um that all kind of went away and he was treated very poorly um and very unfairly because he was biracial and so It's encouraging to know that his words have lasted for so long and that his, you know, like the power of like prose has actually lasted so long. And so he I I don't think that like the knowing smile on his deathbed necessarily (laughs) happened. I think that's just a very probably
1: just really doped up on morphine. But
0: (laughs) yeah, but I mean, I I think it's a a great story because It it, it makes me think of like, you know, like, that's how he would have romanticized one of his characters. Yeah, and that's true. I think he true. wrote characters very, very well, too. And
1: I feel like if his... So he's telling this to his son, who is also a writer. Of course, he's going to have a beautiful picture, particularly if his father continued to be famous right. after his death. So right.
0: that's kind of nice. Right. I think he faded into, like, some obscurity, but then, you know, he he still, you know, persists. In, and I hope that young readers in like high school and college and stuff are still reading Alexander Dumas and still understanding, you know, like his. I mean, there's
1: even a new movie that's coming out this year based off of his story that you sent me earlier. It's a French movie. It looks so epic. (laughs) It does.
0: Kathleen Um, in her, in her foreign film uh, obsession phase in college would have been all over that.
1: One thing I think is disappointing is as a, an author of color, all of his characters, and whether or not he meant them to be this way or not, but they're interpreted as white, exactly. Um, yeah, but I guess we, if the aristocracy at the time were white, and there was no, you know, that that might have been an assumption that was made because of that.
0: But right, one one of the things that I'm consistently like disappointed with is adaptations of his work. I mean, even though like the Leonardo DiCaprio 1990s adaptation, yeah. beloved, but like, why are they all white? Yeah. Why is that the assumption? Yeah.
1: But then I guess if in that era, if he wasn't even allowed to hold a lot of social status because of the color of his skin, then it would make sense that the characters would be white. It would just be nice to see an adaptation that's reflective of the world that he would have wanted.
0: Right. And there, there are characters that certainly, you know, could be like milady and, um, you know, D'Artagnan and all the musketeers, like, you know, like, why Why can't we see a more diverse casting of... Yeah,
1: it would be good to see.
0: Yeah. It, it was fun researching this today. <laughs> that sounds fun. It's a good What book. do you have? What do you have for us, okay. Christian?
1: I have... All right. So, first of all, I am straight up obsessed with this author. Um, in Another Life, I almost pursued a PhD. <laughs> almost. There was a whole, like, track where I almost pursued a PhD basically based off of this author's writing. And it was like it was going to be white women versus like against white women's writing in the 19th and 20th century versus black women's writing at the same time um which would have been so cool but reality called and that didn't make me any money <laughs> but i'm still <laughs> obsessed <laughs> with Zora Neale Hurston she yes. is such a badass bitch yet and, another badass bitch dude like you don't even know okay so we're going to get into that but The book we are talking about today, out of her many, um, are Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is notably her most famous book, most likely. But it is, it's a wonderful book, highly suggest it. But also, she's just a fucking badass, like, all around. Um, Love that, love that. So, I can't think of a drinking game for this, but I was, like, kind of going through. um, But you know what? Take a drink every time a Black woman in the story does something that is badass. Because there Hell are a lot of yeah.
0: I'm already I'm already taking a drink for Zora <laughs> Neale Hurston for writing it. Because
1: she wrote the book. Okay, so um, I feel like this my 30-second summary will come, and then I have a preface that I feel like should come before the book and not after, where normally I would do the other way around. 30-second summary of Their Eyes Were Watching God is it is a tale of Janie Crawford, who is looking for her own identity, and her quest takes her on a journey during which she learns what love is experiences joys and sorrows and then comes home to herself in peace and also finds some murder. Boom boom
0: boom. A murder. murder I have to admit, I, I am not the only like touch point I have for this is that I think I saw like some type of educational video about it in like high school or college. And I've I've never actually read this book and I've also never had it as an assignment.
1: I think that I didn't get this as an assignment in high school either. It wasn't until college that I had it. And it was a black women's literature course where I was introduced to her and Octavia Butler and all of the women that I'm like, that are powerhouses that I'm obsessed with. But I think personally that a lot of rural white schools do an injustice by not teaching this book. This book was insane, but it also calls people like calls white people out on their shit. And sometimes people just don't like to hear that. And you don't want to explain to a 15-year-old why they're calling you out when you don't fully understand it. So I think a lot of teachers avoid this. And apologies to my teachers because that is not a judgment against them. I think that they do what they're given. And also the district approves the books. Um, This is a book that is on the banned list frequently. And it's on the banned list for the same reason that it was banned when she first wrote it. Because it gives Black rural people voices that they were not allowed to have at the time and sometimes still aren't
0: allowed to have. So I think it's a super powerful book. This is why critical race theory is so Um, important today. And let's just point out that critical race theory is not indoctrination. No, (laughs) let's point out that education is not indoctrination. If you go to college that's not you being That's indoctrinated into being a, like, quote, liberal. That's silly. <laughs> and we should respect our teachers. Okay, so
1: tangent real quick. <laughs> <laughs> because we're here. So why not? I feel like there is a huge anti-education argument in the United States right now. Yeah. the And to think about historically... It has been historically beneficial to people in power to keep people uneducated, to keep people uneducated on race theory, to keep people uneducated on cultures that are not their own. Because if you're fighting each other, you cannot fight the power that be. So you're not going to make a point to make your lives better or the general population because you're too worried about other people stealing your jobs or whatever. Right. Um, So- have some critical thinking um, when you read this book, because you should, and I will get off my soapbox before I go too far because I feel like I'm just like diving in and I should-
0: No, stop. it's it's an important soapbox. <laughs> it's an important soapbox and it's why, you know, like well, the reason why we come here, you know, to talk about this stuff- It's true. And the reason why we get drunk and talk about it to each other is because it's conversations that should be had.
1: It is conversations that should be had. And one of the things that I've learned, so I'm on a whole journey of self-discovery in- all of this, which is why I have such an extensive reading list for every white person, particularly women out there, to learn about yourselves in order to be a better human being. Exactly. But I think that, like, the I, the things that we take for granted are the things that Sora Neale Hurston stood for. You know, like, there are a lot of things that we don't understand as human beings and that we allow to pass through our fingers because. I feel like I'm not eloquent at all. I'm way too drunk to have these
0: conversations. See, um, this, is why, this is why you're going to have to go first to have the eloquent. Yeah, I just gotta, eloquent. oh man. No, you're, you're, you're um, so good. I mean, I'm drunk too, <laughs> but from my drunk perspective, you're doing so good right now.
1: Thanks so much. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of educational opportunities and it has to be a constant effort. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be intentional. And you have to understand that your biases in the way that you see the world are not necessarily things that are intrinsic or things that you can't help, but things that you have been conditioned to realize. So some of that we'll get into with Zora Neale Hurston. But all of this to say, um, one of the things that I wanted to point out before diving into the summary of this book is that when Zora Neale Hurston wrote this book, she's an anthropologist by career. Like her career was as an anthropologist. Um, She was not a fiction author. That was like not her plan, but she was a black woman who was an anthropologist. And I believe she started in the 19-teens, 1920s. So she wrote this book in 1923. So she was in the 1920s, or I'm sorry, 1937. So in 1923 was when she did other work that was like central to creating this book. But she was an anthropologist who was going to Black communities in the rural South and telling their stories in the way that they told them. And the way that she speaks in these books, if you struggle with reading Their Eyes Were Watching God or any of Zora Neale Hurston's books, I would highly recommend you read it out loud, because she does she yeah. speaks and she does the dialogue in the way that they speak colloquially. Colloquially, right.
0: <laughs> colloquial. I can't even say it right.
1: Colloquially, <laughs> locally. Yeah. So it it is said the way that it sounds. It is spelled yes. the way that it sounds. So it's phonetically. It somewhat.
0: That's um, another not, word. It's not phonetically,
1: because um, that's a whole different thing when you write it out. <laughs> but she uses the way that they speak to express themselves and tells their story through their own words. When she wrote the books initially, they were banned because, her, because of the time in the 1930s, books were published for white audiences. And the white audiences, particularly white men, did not feel that they could understand what they were saying and therefore
0: yeah didn't feel like they could understand what was written on the page so it
1: became a banned book because very quickly because they couldn't understand what was being said therefore it must be you know heretical treasonous whatever you want to name it
0: oh my Um, god there was a lot to it
1: so yeah it was it was intense but it is a beautiful book and yeah, there's a, there are a lot of themes that are really cool in it. Um, so let's just dive right in.
0: Yes, let's do it. All right. I'm ready. So the,
1: the book starts with Janie Crawford, who is a confident, beautiful, middle-aged Black woman who returns to Eatonville, Florida after a long absence. So this story, the factualness of this story is debatable. But um, Zora Neale Hurston did do research in Eatonville, um, which is cool. Um, so it is a black town, which is why she was doing research there. It's a predominantly black town. There are there are no white people in this town. Um, so Janie Crawford goes back and listens to people start gossip and speculating about where she's been and what happened to her husband. His name is Tea Cake. They um take her confidence. She's a very confident person. So they take that as aloofness, and her friend Phoebe sticks up for her. Um, and she tries to like. Phoebe comes to visit her to find out what has happened. And their conversation frames the whole story that Janie tells. Um, And the whole story is like what happened in the past. So So, it's like a
0: story within a story situation.
1: Yes, it very much is.
0: I love Um, a story within a story situation. It's just so well done.
1: So Janie was raised by her grandmother after her mother ran off. Uh, She calls her grandmother nanny um, who they were very, very close. And she was very, her nanny was very dedicated to her, um, but she was a slave Nanny was a slave, um, and her experience of being a slave with her own daughter has warped her worldview. So her her value that she sees in the relationships that Janie has are really just to marry her off to a husband who can provide security and social status, because previously that was impossible. So the next step is really... Just to marry her off. So her, her grandmother wants to marry her off. Yes. So her grandmother was a slave and raised her daughter while she was a slave. And then yeah. they became free and she's trying to provide for Janie in the best way that she knows how. And in that way is really just having a social status, like being wow. able to be financially secure and not reliant on someone else.
0: Which, so- I mean, what does financially secure, you know, like what, what does that even mean In a world where, you know, like this main character has been raised by someone who was enslaved.
1: Yeah. It sounds like that, like the financial security that she sees is just in owning their own things and not being like a sharecropper, which would have been the case for most people at that point in time. Most people, most black people at that point in time um, in the South. So she finds a, an older farmer named Logan Killicks and insists that Janie marries him. And Janie moves in with Logan, and she is absolutely miserable. He's completely unromantic, and he treats her like she says a pack mule. And at one point, she meets this guy, Joe Starks, who's like smooth-talking, ambitious. um, And he flirts with Janie um, in secret, and then they run off and get married. So Janie's supposed to be married to Logan, runs off with Joe Starks. Joe Starks is a name. Right? That's
0: like... Like, you know, that's like uh, Wickham.
1: Yeah. He's the Wickham. (laughs) He's the Wickham. He's the Wickham of this story uh, because he's also a turd. So, (laughs) (laughs) so Janie and she calls her, she calls Joe Jody. Um, So Janie and Jody travel back to Eatonville and where Jody hopes to have a big voice because he thinks he's all that. Um, So he wants to be a politician. He succeeds in becoming mayor and postmaster and storekeeper and the biggest landlord of the town. But Janie wants more than a man with a big voice is how Wikipedia puts it. Um, She becomes disenchanted. She finds it monotonous, stifling. And then she shares that with Jody that she's like, this is not really what I wanted. And I kind of wish that we could be a part of have more of a social life. And, but Jody's like, no, no, no. Like we don't interact with the common people. uh Uh,
0: yeah see all this stuff right here this is reading as small dick energy yeah and when Uh, you were like a trophy yeah she wants a man with more than a big voice wink Mm -hmm. wink (laughs) something's going on yeah um so
1: he is like no no no. you're gonna be like my arm candy um and you're gonna be everything a mayor's wife should be and then Janie's like okay fine that's whatever i will be okay with this and then she just Remains very passionate, full of her own dreams,
0: but quiet, um,
1: as women tend to do.
0: Oh, I'm taking yeah. a drink in the sadness of that. Yeah, Because I, I know it's going <laughs> to turn around. I know
1: it's about to it turn around. It has to, right? So after like 20 years of marriage, Janie finally is like, fuck this. No, I'm not doing it. Jody insults her appearance, and she rips him to shreds in front of other people, telling Hell, him yeah, how she ugly does. she calls him impotent um (laughs) see i told you yeah you know there's just little dick energy Mm -hmm. um small dick energy right there his response is to physically savagely and she is just like i'm over this like their marriage starts to break down he becomes ill and after months without interacting with each other or other people Janie visits him on his deathbed and refuses to be silenced. Um, she chastises him for the way he treated her and berates him, and then he dies. Good! yeah. So, after jo- Jody dies, she feels free for, like, the first time in her life. Um, uh, all these guys come after her because, you know, she's gorgeous and confident and whatever, and she's like, no, I'm good. And then a young man, who is 12 years younger than her, named T.K., comes in, and she's like, oh, he's sexy. Um... <laughs> She's like meow, (laughs) and uh, she starts dating him despite like all the gossip and everyone's shook when she marries T Cake after like nine months that Jody's been dead. Sells Jody's store. That is fast. It's very fast. She moves quick. Um, She marries him and moves to Jacksonville after selling Jody's store. So she sells the only assets they have left in town and is like, I'm out. And then. They start to encounter difficulties. He steals her money and leaves her alone. And she's like, well, what the heck is going on? Um, no. And that she's like, well, he probably only married me for my money. But then he comes back, that explaining that he never meant to leave. And then he, like, a theft occurred. And like it was just a moment of weakness and whatever. And he promises that they'll share all these experiences and opinions from this point on. Like They'll never lie to each other.
0: And then they move to the Everglades
1: which feels like never the good start to a story. Like if you moved to the Everglades. No,
0: nothing good happens in the Everglades. I've never been to the Everglades, but...
1: I know there are crocodiles and like, or alligators. One or the other, I could feed you to something that would eat you.
0: (laughs) That's all you need to know. dispose of a body very easily (laughs) in the Everglades.
1: (laughs) So they moved to the Everglades and they're working there during harvest season and they socialize and there's the off season. Um, And Tea Cake is like the man about town. Like he is the center of entertainment and social life. And then two years after they get married, there's like a huge hurricane and they have to flee because obviously water and TK gets bit by a rabid dog and he doesn't realize the dog's condition. And like three weeks, three weeks later he falls ill because he has rabies.
0: Oh my God. Rabies. Okay. Side note on rabies. If you've never went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole about rabies, it is, now is time. messed. Yeah. Treat yourself. Go ahead and treat yourself. <laughs> Go down that rabbit hole about rabies. It is really fucked up and scary. Talk about like diseases that just like defy all the odds of messing yeah. with your brain. It's insane. So it's- like tea cake has sucked up to this
1: point, but rabies doesn't number. Yeah, so he starts thinking that she's cheating, and not only does he like get mad that he thinks she's cheating, he starts trying to shoot her. He starts firing a pistol at her, and she is forced to kill him to save her life. Oh my god! So she's put on trial. Now let me let me have you. Uh, I guess pop quiz. What do you think that jury looks like? Mm, I bet it's all white men. It is all oh white, my all male god. Journey, jury jury finds her guilty, disregards the rabies and the fact that she had to save her own life. And she, or I'm sorry, they find her not guilty. Oh, so she returns to, I said guilty. Like that's the end of the story. Bye guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She goes to jail at the end, but it's an all white, all male jury that finds her not guilty. She returns to Eatonville, where her former neighbors are like, Oh, like, she killed her husband or did like he leave her has he run away with her money the true crime rumor mill yeah 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 it's it's alive and well so she tells phoebe this whole story about what happens and the reality of what happens and then she feels finally at peace with like the choices she was forced to make and how she had to kill tk and this is not saying he deserved to die But I I did read this book and he kinda sucks. Like (laughs) Tea Cake just wasn't a great husband. But the point being that they had a lot of struggles. She faced a lot of struggles and she finally feels at peace and she is back home in Eatonville.
0: And this Phoebe girl is sitting there, like, I just asked you if you wanted like milk in your coffee, (laughs) and you told me this whole story.
1: See, my theory is that she came in and she's like, girl, it's been 10 years, like spill all the tea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, I, I've got some tea.
0: (laughs) They were, they were like on an elevator for this whole thing. And like, she told her the whole story, like in an elevator.
1: (laughs) Millennial version of their eyes were watching
0: God. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: Elevator stories.
0: Yes. I forgot my millennial part of Three Musketeers. Oh, no. I had like a whole thing about how, um, in the Disney, the 1993 Disney movie, the Three Musketeers talking to D'Artagnan about like, oh, he's so young and innocent, but he's so good at sword fighting and everything. Like, he's, he's better at, the, he's better at being a musketeer than we ever were, but we are drunks and we <laughs> like, therefore we rule. <laughs> yeah, we like to drink and we are like defeated and beaten down by the world and I was like, oh my god, it's millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I Makes feel like it. um I feel like Phoebe is is she's the Gen Z one.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. Sorry, I'm trying to scroll through cuz I found something interesting. There are so many things about this book that are incredibly interesting. It is it's I think the fact that they acknowledge that Nanny was born in slavery and that framed the way that the main character is brought up and the way that she views the world is like a beautiful and necessary thing.
0: Right. Um, Well, I mean, beautiful and tragic and also. Yeah. But like the fact that it's acknowledged. Right. In that way.
1: Zora Neale Hurston was one of the first authors to acknowledge the impact of slavery on the Black community that was widespread. I'm not saying that there weren't other authors that did that because there were a lot of Black authors that were trying to do that, but she stuck her foot through that door. And they talk a lot about the differences in the communities. So Jody is compared at one point to the master of a plantation, and they talk about how he becomes a figure, figure of authority because he has money and is determined to create the first Black town. But there's all of these hierarchies and nuances to that relationship, and it's just super, super interesting. And when she marries Tea Cake and moves to the Everglades, she is starting a whole new world. Yeah. And she is complimented on her European white features and for her mixed race ancestry. So there's a whole like complicated thing that goes on with like the way that Janie defines herself and the way that she's understood by the world around her. That is just, I don't know, super interesting to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and also framing it as the grandmother and the mother having grown up as enslaved people. And mm-hmm. then the, the all of the people that Janie Janie, Janie is her name, right? Yeah. Jeez. All the people that Janie encounters throughout the novel are roughly the same age as her, except for the man that she marries that's 12 years younger. Mm-hmm. So thinking of that in that context and thinking about how their parents and grandparents might have also been enslaved and how that has affected their behavior. That's thats just like, yeah. I, I don't know if it's, if it's written about in the novel at all because we only get Janie's perspective, but it's definitely something that I'm sure it affects all the characters.
1: I think what's interesting, too, is like, um, and this is not in the story itself, but rather the way it was received. A lot of authors at the time, like a lot of people who are part of the Harlem Renaissance felt that she was writing the way that people wanted to see Um, one of the descriptions that Richard Wright Said um, he condemned their eyes were watching God because he said that it her characters eat and laugh and cry and work and kill they swing be- like a pendulum eternally in this in that safe and narrow orbit which America likes to see the Negro live between laughter and tears so they said that because her characters were happy and then extra sad like that that was the only thing that she was capable of um, so she was shot down pretty quickly by a lot of different air era- like different prominent figures of society for talking about and telling the story in a way that showed the happiness and the sadness and how those two things came together
0: right but also like i mean i mean thinking about like the 1920s and that time period too like that's when we do have a lot of like the um stream of consciousness and um kind of like the lost generation yeah. i think was like that time period so like after world war 1 mm-hmm. before world war 2 so you had a lot of, like, boring ass literature, in my yeah. opinion. You And it was, like, a lot of, like, very static yeah, emotional is, stuff. But it wasn't just – see, Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, to see, like, that range of emotion reaching back to something that, that feels a little bit more like melodrama of, like, earlier and then, as we know, in hindsight, later – stuff that would appear in um, literature and also on stage for dramas, I think she was ahead of her time.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, she was definitely ahead of her time in the way that she wrote and the things that she decided to research, especially as a Black woman, because they weren't allowed to do that at the time that she was doing it. But I think the thing is, in that era of literature, you a lot of things were writing about the human experience. It was boring in quotations because it was just about the day-to-day human experience and the emotions. And she did that for black Americans in the rural South. And that was unheard of. The fact that it was so unheard of, and because I think she was ahead of her time, it was people thought it was potentially damaging to their own mission. As like being an author who is speaking a black author who is speaking to white audiences, there were a lot of nuances in that relationship in order to be expect accepted and to be heard. And I think she blew those out of the water. Intentionally, and at that point in time, that's a scary thing to do because, like, if you feel right. like you're being heard and someone's going to shut you down, she could be threatening. I have a, sorry, I can't like I just had my wisdom teeth removed, so I can't blow my nose because one of them was like in my sinus, which is a whole thing. So I keep like getting like sniffles.
0: No, but I can't do anything. Oh, <laughs> so I mean, apologize I knew you that. Your wisdom pauses. teeth removed, but like that's just such an unfortunate <laughs> side effect. I'm so <laughs> right? sorry. So every time I pause, I'm like.
1: Don't, don't try to learn, <laughs> but I know we're going to get cut off again. We need to uh,
0: have someone buy a Zoom. Um. <laughs> yes, please donate to the Kathleen and Christian can afford Zoom fund. You can, you can contact us at two English majors <laughs> at gmail.com. Yes, but yes. we can, we can get cut off, cut off and yeah, come okay. back in. Cause I have so many things to say about Zora Yeah, you know her, so. Yeah, we can, we can end here and then jump back in. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So back to what you were saying
1: um Zora Neale Hurston is a badass or was a badass
0: I'll drink to that
1: yes so I love their eyes we're watching God I do um I think that Zora Neale Hurston wrote so many good things uh her most recently published was Bear Coon which is the last slave narrative like oh, so wow. and I don't mean like it's the last slave narrative that was ever written it was the last narrative written about the last slave, like the last living slave in the United States in the 1930s. It was shot down because there was a lot of um, plagiarism, to be frank, in her initial. But the thing is that, and this is like, I feel like this is where it gets sketchy. Yes, she plagiarized. She plagiarized other black writers. And I think that was because she, in personal opinion, she thought that the white audience who she was writing for wouldn't know that she had plagiarized so barracoon was recently published i think in 2020 2019 somewhere in there and um it has all of the the things that she had plagiarized correctly cited
0: which is really cool
1: because then it gives you insight to a lot of texts that were written at the time by black writers that wouldn't have been
0: popular right right and
1: own right is amazing
0: Right. Very important to like, first of all, give credit where credit is due Mm -hmm. and also put that in context. And I think that's a big part of, of teaching these texts in classrooms is like understanding the context.
1: Yeah. Agreed. So I know we could talk forever. It's Black History Month. And so I like to highlight the person, their work is amazing. But you can find the work anywhere. Um, I mean, I know you can find Zora Neale Hurston's story other places, but I think that the struggle that she went through in order to make her voice heard is something that is relatable um, to so many people. And I think we also need to understand how much... Because she died in the 60s. She died in... Let's see. Yeah, she died in 1960. She was 69 years old. And yet... She struggled to have her voice be heard, and that's not that long ago, right? You know. so um, anyway, so she moved to she actually lived in Eatonville, Florida, growing up. So she was not born born there, but they moved there. So it became right. like the backdrop for a lot of her stories because it was a fully black town um in Florida, which was a big deal. One thing I think is really cool about her, and this is a little bit of like urban legend that goes around her because she was, really amazing uh she was firstly this is not the urban legend part but she went to howard university one of the first historically black colleges in dc and she was one of the earliest initiates to zeta phi beta sorority which is a was founded by black women for black women so it is a black female sorority Founded by Black women, um, which is super cool. But she, um, during her graduate time, she started researching and doing anthropological research into the communities in the South, in the rural South. And she would go around in this. You can find photos of her with this like really nice car and her pearl handled pistol. So she was like, what? Like known? And again, it's probably urban legend that she like. I mean, she did have these things, but like a lot of it's built around the imagery that she would drive around in this nice car to these different towns to do her research with her pistol. So no one would screw with her. So <laughs> I just, I love it.
0: <laughs> yes. How awesome is it to like, do your, you know, research and then get known mm-hmm. for like doing your research and being a badass while doing it for yeah. your novels and stuff. I, I think that was something that didn't really come about until, mm-hmm. you know, like the, I, I'm drunk, so I can't figure out whether it's the 20th century <laughs> or the 19th century. So, like the 1900s.
1: That would be the 20th century.
0: Yes, the so. 20th century. That's what it is. Back when, back when Christian and I were kids in the 1900s, we, were, we little babes. Uh, well, Christian was 35. Yeah, but always we didn't start thinking of a single people traveling around to different places or doing research by themselves and like typing at a typewriter. And that was one thing that was brought up in some of the Alexander Dumas epi- er, episodes, no, like web <laughs> YouTube series things that I watched today was that he he was kind of, he was more like a um, showrunner yeah. than a uh, like individual author. Like there were multiple people doing research for him. And and he would read that research and he would make novels out of it, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's so interesting how things changed.
1: I think, like, there's a lot to be said about Hurston. Some of my favorite random facts are the fr- the fact that she was friends with County Colin and Langston Hughes. So, you know, she had good <laughs> people around. Um, right. <laughs> but one story that's in the Wikipedia that I did not know... It talks about her anthropological work. And I knew that she had traveled extensively in the Caribbean and in the American South and immersed herself in those local cultures to create her stories and to tell the stories of the people that lived there. I did not know that in the last decade that she was alive, she was working as a freelance writer for magazines and newspapers and was asked by Sam Nunn, the editor of the Pittsburgh Courier to go to Florida for a murder trial of Ruby McCollum.
0: What?
1: Um, yeah. Ruby was charged with murdering Dr. C. Leroy Adams, who is a politician. Um, And McCollum had said that he forced her to have sex and to bear his children. And Zora Neale Hurston came and she had recalled what she saw of the white male sexual dominance in the lumber camps in North Florida and had discussed it with Sam Nunn. Um, They both thought that the case might be that this they called it such it says Wikipedia says they both thought the case might be about such paramour rights and wanted to expose that to a national audience. When she got there she was surprised because she had a gag order from the judge and the trial was placed on on the defense but her inability to get the residents in the like, she couldn't get anybody to talk about this. So she got a gag order. She wasn't supposed to talk about it. And then in oh, trying wow. to talk to people, both black and white members of the community were silent. And she thought it might be related to his involvement in, like, a gambling operation that Sam McCollum, Ruby's husband, was involved in. It was a whole, whole thing. Um, wow. And then she published articles about the trial during the trial, despite the gag order.
0: And... She would have been a true crime podcaster. She would have today. been. And she would
1: have been one of the hated ones. <laughs> but no. Ruby McCollum was sentenced or convicted by an all-male, all-white jury and sentenced to death. And Hurston's special assignment to write a serialized account, she did. It was the life story of Ruby McCollum. And it was published in the newspapers, in th- over three months in newspapers in 1953. And it ended abruptly when... Sam Nunn disagreed about her pay and she just left. So he stopped paying her, so she stopped doing it. <laughs> oh um, my
0: God.
1: Yeah. So she um it said unable to pay independently to return for the appeal and second trial, Hurston contacted journalist William Bradford Huey, who she'd worked for previously, to try and get him interested in the case. And he covered the appeal at the second trial and developed materials in the background of investigation, Hurston showed her materials from the first trial, and he acknowledged her briefly in the book that he wrote about Ruby McCollum, which became a a bestseller, and Hurston celebrated that, which is crazy to me because I would have been like, fuck that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, She's
0: not as petty as us.
1: Yeah, I am like super petty about this shit. (laughs) (laughs) But she said... What she said was McCollum's testimony in her own defense marked the first time that a woman of African-American descent was allowed to testify as to the paternity of her children by a white man. Hurston firmly believed that Ruby McCollum's testimony sounded the death toll of the paramour rights and the segregationist South. So like not only I mean, just a whole like she just let him take it from her because it gave Black women a voice and it allowed them, allowed this woman to be the first person and everyone to know her story. Yeah. And dude, that was in the 1950s. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. and then later on, she was like fired for being too good at her job because she was too well, too well educated. Um, but oh that's a whole other thing. But like uh. this whole. I don't know. She lived this whole life where whole her whole point was giving voices to people who had not had them before, and right. like you can see the photos of her, she just looks like a badass. Like she's just incredible, and those stories are still giving voices to people almost a hundred years later. Yeah, it's crazy, and and not in. I don't think that that there's any way to like Zora Neale Hurston is one of the people who founded. I don't want to say founded because that's not fair. She paved the way for people forcing white communities to listen because exactly. she was unapologetic about the way that people spoke and the way that she told her stories and the factualness behind, like that, what was factual in those stories. Right? People said that you just you like the misery and the laughter. Like she was like, no, 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 that's just reality. Like that's right. the lives that they live. So get used to it because that's what's happening. And I think it. She's just such an amazing author. I think yeah. honestly that it's time for a lot of black literature, specifically black women's literature to yes. come back around. Like, that's why I was so excited about Kindred, which by the way, got canceled. No. What? Okay. Uh, I know that they messed up the story just a little bit, but just saying, it was yeah. still really good. What right. I'm hoping, because I think that, and this is, I'm going off on a whole different tangent that has nothing to do with their eyes. we watching God. Um, I'm hoping that it's picked up by someone else justice for
0: kindred, yeah for real oh yay well this this was so fun, very educational, very fun, yeah, and I, I I'm so glad that we like chose the stuff that we did because I always like when when I can like go first and then get to like <laughs> sit in like the back of the lecture hall second and be like <laughs> Let's talk about the size of people's penises. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, Keeps it interesting. Oh, <laughs> cool. cool. Well, I don't think there's anything for us to announce at the end of the episode other than, you know, like several book recommendations throughout the episode yeah. that we've thrown out there. Go check them out. I know before the episode, we saw like several listicles out there that you can find very easily on mm-hmm. the Googles. I have um, to say,
1: I feel like I should plug a couple books because I think it's important. Yes. Um, it is Black History Month, which mm-hmm. confining Black history to one month is ridiculous in and of itself. But as a white woman, I think, as we've said earlier in the episode, that education has to be intentional and yes. it has to be consistent and constant. We are put in a privileged position just by the systemic racism that exists in the United States. And I think that while that can be difficult to see and difficult to confront, we do have unintentional biases that we need to work on yes. as white women in this world. So I would highly, highly recommend for people who have not read them, White Fragility, Anything by Tanasi Coates, Abram X Kennedy, X Kendi, sorry, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and The Cat and Cast. I cannot remember the author, but the book Cast. They're all yes. phenomenal. They will make you cringe and they will make you uncomfortable, but it is a healthy uncomfortable because it confronts the racist systemic issues in the United States that we are a part of without intentionally meaning to be.
0: Exactly. So I think
1: that there are a lot of things I've done in my past where I read White Fragility and I was like, oh my God, but it's healthy. <laughs> right. And it helps you become a better person. So strongly, strongly recommend those. If it's difficult to get through, I would recommend audiobooks because those are wonderful. And, I gotta say anything by Tanasi Coates in as an audiobook, it's just phenomenal. It is poetry and beautiful, and you will want to listen to it over and over again as you cringe at the things that you've done in the past.
0: <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Beautiful and confronting. So very and much Also, a great time. if you are somebody who needs fiction right now as well. Uh, one of the listicles that I found recommended a uh, novel mm-hmm. called Black Buck by, I looked up the author. It's Mateo, I think it's Askaripur, Poor. And the little description here says it's about a uh, a Black man, Darren, 22-year-old salesman and entrepreneur is struggling with self-identity and he takes a job as the only Black person working at a tech startup. mm mm-hmm and Worthy. he yes another recommendation the hate you give oh yeah that yeah, yeah. one is powerful
1: and so well done and a relatively easy read not the content but the structure of the book is relatively easy read
0: yeah so you have options for fiction and nonfiction, and also you know like figure out like what speaks to you best audiobook reading mm-hmm. it book in hand but if you're bottom like line,
1: educate yourself
0: Yes. Be aware. Yes, that's what I was about to say. If if you <laughs> just need to read a Wikipedia. Yeah. If yeah. you just need to read a Wikipedia article, take some time this month to educate yourself in yeah. some way. And if it's the Wikipedia article, read the
1: Wikipedia article on these books. Like just educate yourself, confront your own biases and continue to work at that because that's yes. what we have to do.
0: Hell yeah. And we love you all. Yes. Cool, cool. Well, we're the two English majors. We come to you every month, once a month. And you can find us on social media that we always forget to post. On.
1: <laughs> <laughs> someday we'll remember. I am yeah, just someday. like really bad at social media. I gotta be honest.
0: I know. Someday I will remember to make an Instagram post. Two English majors walk into a bar on Instagram. I'm Kathleen Brumbach on Instagram. And I'm Christian Lutz. And I might post sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't post but you should follow us yeah, follow us and then someday us. you'll be surprised yes the more you follow us the more we'll be inspired to post there we go we'll go with that <laughs> well we love you all Bye. thank you for listening Majors Walk into a Bar is produced by Kathleen Brumbach and Christian Lutz. Cover art by Bobby Lutz and sound design by Matt Fletcher.